I have a picture of Alexa in a little pink dress and white buckle shoes with a Band-Aid outside the shoe because her toe hurt. And to me, that's always who that man raped. I never see her as an 18-year-old being assaulted. I see her as that little girl in that pink outfit. Beyond Fear podcast is one continuous story where episodes build from one to the next with the ability to reach back to previous episodes when necessary. Early on, we spoke about the fact that fewer than 40% of sex crimes are ever reported to law enforcement. There are many reasons why a survivor might make the choice to not formally report, just as there are many reasons why someone might choose to go to the police. This episode of Beyond Fear walks you through the criminal justice process for survivors who do experience it. We dedicate this episode to the memory of Daisy Coleman, who last week took her own life after a long struggle with her rape and the criminal justice system that failed her. In this episode, Alexa shares her experience of going through the criminal justice system. We are also joined by her mother, Stacey Branchini, to dive even deeper into the impact of a criminal trial often referred to as the second rape, on the families of survivors as well. The decision to invite Stacy was also a result of Alexa's inability to remember many of the details after her rape while putting this episode together. Including Stacy provides a unique perspective of this process and also highlights how trauma due to the rape impacted Alexa's ability to recall certain events around that time. As always, we recognize that this material may be difficult to listen to, If you need to stop listening and come back to it, or if you need to listen with a friend, please do so. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina, and this is Episode 7 of Beyond Fear. So as Alyssa mentioned, I oftentimes don't talk about the sequence of events that occurred after I was assaulted or after the police were called that night. And part of the reason for this is that, one, it's oftentimes difficult for me to remember. And two, um, not many people go through the process of reporting. And so I oftentimes feel like that part of my story is just just something I don't typically share. Um, I don't feel like it's relatable for a lot of people. So we'll, I'm sure we'll explore that a little bit more. Um, but my mom is also with us today to help us sort of piece together the timeline of, of events and share what the impact was for her of going through um, a criminal trial. So what is it like for family members of survivors to go through um, the criminal justice process. I guess I'll just start by sharing what happened after I was assaulted. So basically I came out into the hallway of my dorm room and there were several girls that I had been out with that evening. And they must have really been able to tell that something had happened and was not right because they, I just remember them sort of rushing me to the RA's room and that's where an ambulance and the police were called. And I remember being 
terrified that he was going to come back and get me. Like even sitting in the RA's room, I was so, so, so scared that he was going to come back. So I don't remember the ambulance ride. I remember being in the hospital bed vaguely. Um, I remember police officers came in several times to ask me this of what happened. And so I remember relaying my story several times. I remember telling one of the doctors what happened and explaining to him what happened. I remember a sane nurse coming in. And so I had explained to her also what happened. Um, and so I felt like I was sort of repeating myself over and over. Um, and I vaguely remember having that exam by the sane nurse and just being sort of detached from what was going on. Like I remember it happening, but I don't remember how it felt. I do remember having to take a lot of different medications and pills. Um, and we'll talk about why I had to be on some of those for a while um, afterwards as well, but a lot of preventative stuff and I'm sure something to prevent pregnancy as well. So eventually one of the officers came back and said that they had apprehended somebody that fit the description. They asked me to describe the knife again and that fit with the description that they had of the weapon he was carrying. And I think eventually it was a doctor who asked if I wanted to call my parents and I just remember thinking, yes, I want my parents to be there, but I didn't feel like I could handle calling them. Like, I didn't feel like, like, I can't, I still can't imagine having that conversation. And so I guess they called my parents. And then I remember being in a hotel room. The next thing I sort of remember is being in a hotel room with my boyfriend at the time who's actually my high school boyfriend and he was able to get to me before my parents could so my parents because he was in Connecticut and I was in Massachusetts so my parents contacted him and he actually I guess checked me out of the hospital and brought me to the hotel room that my parents had gotten and stayed with me there till they arrived there so mom maybe you wanted to like chime in and chime in there's so much that you remember incorrectly <laughs> and don't My forget bad. don't forget I was able to be in the courtroom and hear the testimony of the girls that first saw you and it was one girl and she saw this strange man and she testified that Alexa had gone to bed early or than they did because she wasn't feeling well and they saw her with this strange big man and she said right away I knew it didn't look right. And I said, Lexa, are you okay? And you went, he hurt me. He hurt me. And you collapsed and he ran out and they dragged you into the RA's room where you were hysterical. And like you said, they took you to the hospital, etc. When we got the call at 730 in the morning, um, a doctor called and he was very, um, formal and clinical about it. He just said, we're calling to tell you that your daughter, and I said, was raped. I knew it. I just, I knew what he was going to say. And I said, may I speak to her? And he said, yes. And they gave me the phone and I said, oh my God, Lexa, 
We'll be there as soon as we can. Why didn't you call me? And you said, they wouldn't let me call you, Mom. Please hurry. Really? Yes, that's what you said to me. And I said, why wouldn't they let you call? And she said, until I was calm, they wouldn't let me call you. And I was really angry about that. Mm. So, and when they took you to that Howard Johnson's, which they were using as an overflow dorm, I don't know if you remember this, but they wouldn't let you in because you had no ID. You were in hospital pajamas with nothing. You had nothing with you. Mm. Finally, said she has an ID bracelet on her arm from the hospital. And that's when they finally let you in the room. And this room had nothing in it. It was a plastic mattress with a a sheet, a top sheet and a bottom sheet. There was not a jug for water. There was nothing. They just left you there alone. And when I walked in the room, I went to bend down to hug you, and you said, no, don't. And that just wasn't my Alexa. I mean, you were always a hugger and a kisser, and you just you put your hand up, like, just stop. And I had to stop, and that broke my heart. So from there, we found another hotel, a better hotel. By now... Dad had called the university, and that was a big mess. And we were just trying to all act normal, but nothing was normal ever again. Mm -hmm. I just remember having to have a milkshake because of all the medicine that they gave me. That was like the only thing that felt like I could eat or drink. And I just felt nauseous. I just remember feeling nauseous for a long time. I think it was the HIV medication that I had to take was very, um, just made me feel sick. But once all that happened, I, the next significant thing I remember was being home and then having the detectives come and speak to me. Yeah, well, you just kept saying, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. And Dad didn't want to go home right away because they were going to arraign him the next day, and Dad wanted to go to the arraignment. Mm-hmm. So we stayed over, and Dad went to the arraignment. So that was the next thing. And then we left right after that. Mm-hmm. Police officers flew to Lewiston and talked to you because there was a whole big mess because he got released on bail and they inadvertently gave him back his passport. So the police were in a panic because they thought he'd flee the country. Mm. And then they rearrested him because two, two girls came forward and said that he had chased them and stalked them. And the last time they saw him, he was standing in front of your dorm. Mm-hmm. So he was rearrested for that because he had grabbed the one girl's breasts. So he was oh my charged. Gosh. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. They charged him with assault for that. And he actually got two to five added onto his sentence for that assault. Totally did not realize that. As far as identification went, the girls that saw him in the hall when you were, when they discovered you, they took them in a squad car. They sat him under a street light on the street. And they ID'd him so you didn't have to. And you had told them what pocket he put the knife in. And the policeman went right to that pocket and the knife was still there. That was the only reason you didn't have to ID him because those girls did it. I I know that they showed me the knife when I was in the hospital, though, I think. Mm -hmm. I remember that, that, but who knows what I remember being, whether or not it's accurate. But how the flip would I remember what pocket? I mean, that's like... Because they did ask you that, and you said, 
I was trying to concentrate on everything I could so I could remember. Yeah. And I wanted to think about everything but what was happening to me. Yeah. But it's what's really interesting is like I was almost anticipating this being like apparently there was no doubt in my mind in that moment that if I lived through this that I was going to report it. And like what's interesting to me now is like knowing what I know and what I experienced and the impact of going through that. Like I don't know that I would go through with it. Like I might have still reported it. But going through the trial and waiting for the trial to happen and mom, you know what a mess I was during that period. Mm-hmm. Like it was I, I I sometimes think that's more traumatic than the actual assault. Because I I was, it, was, it was very it was so it, I didn't ever expect the criminal justice system to be as wacky as it was. Let me tell you, because things that happened to this day, I can't get over. But having had the foundation for so many years, I heard story after story about how the system lets victims down, how the victims are treated like the perpetrator, perpetrators treated better than the victim. Mm -hmm. I mean, we spent thousands of dollars going back and forth for this trial. Yeah, it's just crazy stuff that I never expected. At one point during the trial, that was a particularly tough part to hear. My husband had put his arm around my shoulder to comfort me. And they stopped the trial, and the bailiff took us out and took us aside and said, don't do that, because it creates sympathy in the jury's eyes. And I was just, like, pissed off. I thought, oh, you know, really? It creates yeah. sympathy? You know, I, just, things that went on. At the time, I kept thinking the judge was biased toward the perpetrator. But in actuality, this judge was protecting Alexa because yeah. he didn't want any errors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I felt like that. But I always just felt like he was kind of like a no bullshit judge, which I appreciated from him. He w- And he was like always respectful to me. He was never right. at, like and I I guess like maybe we should like set this up too in terms of like for me, it's hard to remember the amount of time that passed between the assault and then going to trial. But I know that we went to Boston a few times and like we're set to start like I was told like we're going to start. And then something would happen and we wouldn't start. But during you, you those... Ran away. You ran away one time. I you did. You ran away in Boston. You left the apartment we had rented and you ran away. I was beside myself. You said, I'm never coming back here. I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. The police came to the apartment. Um, your victim what? Ad... You don't remember any of this? I remember... I always say, like, I wanted to run away. No, you did run away. What and... the... <laughs> I don't... I know it's not funny, but I don't remember this at all. You ran away, and they everybody came to the apartment. We You came back, or we found, I can't remember if we found you, or you just, I think you just came back. And we all sat down, and you said, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing, I'm going to go home. I do remember everybody, like, intervened on me to convince me to continue. And so I just said to them all, we're going home, don't worry. Because I knew once I got you home and you were calmed down again, it would be you'd come to your senses, so to speak. But I, but that was like part of the issue is like I felt like I couldn't back out once it started. Yeah. yeah. And like was, I, I mean, it was headline news in the newspaper for days. Yeah. But I do remember like when I would be home, when we were still like trial was still going to be happening sometime in the future, and I would see my 
uh, rape counsel, like crisis therapist who I really loved and she helped me a lot. But I, every time I remember going to visit her, everything that we talked about had to do with the trial. Like nothing had to do with the trauma of being sexually violated. Like the, the, the complete focus was on my anxiety around the trial. And well, like, when we were waiting for the, the ju- jury to come back when they had a verdict, you were curled up in the fetal position on the bench mm-hmm. of, of the courtroom. You you completely checked out. Yeah. You said to me, what will I do if they don't convict him? And you just went into a ball in the fetal position. I felt like at that point, like I had to... I had to testify, even if it was at the sacrifice of my own, like, sanity. Because at that time, I had, yes, moved back home, but then eventually was living in an apartment, and I was a disaster area. Like, I was drinking all the time. I was just not with the program, and I was avoiding, like, the... (laughs) The victim's advocate in Boston would call me every once in a while to give me updates, and I would, like, never call her back, ever, because I just wanted to avoid it as much as I possibly could. And, like, I don't know, Mom, were you concerned about my behavior during this period? Oh, God, yeah. But I couldn't talk to you about it. You you shut down. Yeah. And we knew you were anorexic. We knew you were drinking because we had bottles of liquor in our house that had been there for years and never been touched and all of a sudden they were going empty when you were still home I mean it wasn't like we were oblivious but we also worked with the counselor and she kept saying until she's ready to admit you know it's not going to do you any good you're going to be banging your head against the wall Mm. yeah and so like what were you well Alyssa do you want to like guide us to the next sort of part because I feel like we're all over I don't know yeah I guess or do you have questions? Um, I guess I'd be really interested to hear uh, one, Stacy. What is what was it like to hear now after all of this time, Alexa talking about the aftermath, and also what was this whole process like for you and your family to experience alongside Alexa? Oh God. Well, first of all, I had to tell my mother. And I had to tell Casey, who was only 13, my husband had passed out twice when the phone call came. I answered the phone when I told him. He looked at me. He kept saying, what? What? Like he had a blank stare. It wasn't filtering into his brain. It was so hard for him. When they arraigned the guy the next day, there was a news flash of my husband being carried out of court by two Massachusetts state Um, troopers because the judge thanked the guy that bailed him out and my husband lost it he just said what are you thanking him for he raped my daughter blah blah blah. he just went bananas and they carried him out of the courtroom and it was on the six o'clock news all over Massachusetts and my husband's originally from Massachusetts so now everybody knew they called started calling and saying what happened you know which which one of the girls you know it just exploded from there he shut down his business, and we just took care of the business of taking care of Alexa. She was on so much medication, anti-AIDS medication, 
we got to the pharmacy to pick it up the night we got home, and it was $2,200, and insurance wouldn't cover it because it was written on an out-of-town script. So my husband lost it again. He just gave him the credit card and said, here. I mean, it was just trauma after trauma. And then Lexa just, she was just so shut down. She gained about 20 pounds the first month. And then after that, she stopped eating. And she always had a hoodie on, a sweatshirt with a hood, and she always had it up. And she was always curled in the corner of the couch. Didn't move, didn't want to know nothing. It was really tough to watch her go through this. It was just, it was one nightmare after another in the aftermath. And, you know, it was so hard to know what to say, what not to say. You know, you want to do the right thing, but you don't know what the right thing is. And she would not talk about it. So we had to respect her wishes. And sometimes, especially for my husband, it was really hard for him to understand. Yeah. It was difficult. Was to say the least. and he was calling the DA constantly. I mean, he God. almost got in trouble with the DA. He went to the DA and threatened him. He said, "What business do you have letting this guy out on bail?" I still have like a lot of guilt for how I treated people around this time because I love my family so much and my mom and I are so close, and it really like hurts me to like think about my behavior. Your behavior was not bad. Your behavior was appropriate for what you'd been through. The only time I couldn't deal with what happened, I, I said something like, Alexa, what can I do? What, you know, is there something? And she looked up at me and she said, Mommy, that Alexa will never be here again. That broke my heart more than any other thing in this whole ordeal because I, I knew she was right. He had taken something from her that she would never get back. And I and I knew what she said was right, was accurate. So that's the kind of impact, that secondary victimology. People forget mm-hmm. that other people are impacted by this. One of the things that Lex and I talk about a lot is what you just said, Stacy, about how right the, the people we were before and the people we are now are not the same. Mm-hmm. Um like that moment in time just, it changes everything. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that change has been? Like who Lex is now versus who she was before? Um, well, Alexa was always the sweetest, the sweetest kid. Huggy, kissy, smiley kid. She hugged her, you know, she was a hugger. She was a kisser. That didn't didn't happen anymore not freely like it did Um, I do now though yeah you're better now yeah but for a long time you couldn't even if if somebody was doing her hair and they took too long and they were too close to her she'd get out of the chair and want to leave I mean that's how bad it was Mm -hmm. um and she wanted to be a veterinarian and that all went out the window because she didn't have her identity anymore she didn't she was struggling to find out who she was now and what she wanted to do. But in the last few years, this warrior princess has come out. <laughs> the way she was in the beginning, she wanted to distance herself from what happened and all of that so much. It's almost surprising to me now that she's come around and she has confronted it and, and is kind of living it now. Mm-hmm. 
Lex, how does it feel to hear your mom say this? It feels really good. I'm glad my mom <laughs> thinks so highly of me. <laughs> oh, I'm very proud of you, and I do think very highly of you. You are a person of character and strength, Alexa, and, and any mother would be proud of that. I mean, and I think I do, I do think though that like mommy, sorry to cut you off, but I I do think though that I would never ever have gone through with the trial if I didn't have my support and like my family behind me I can't imagine not having that and going through that process like I I know mom you and I have talked about this before because we've helped people through the foundation and things who don't really have a lot of support and to go through that process of preparing for the trial and then going through it and then the aftermath of the trial is like I think would be impossible if you didn't have um, that kind of support. I mean, it was really tough because we had to fly back and forth a lot to prepare and the state mom, I'm right. Saying this, the state only paid for me, right. To go. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. I, I was only, and I, you know, I thought about this the other day, like I was only 18 years old. Like I, I was an adult, but I mean, I was really a kid still. Like this was my, you, were, you had just turned 18. Yeah. Two, I, it was three only weeks before this, you know? Yeah. So like, I just was still a kid. So this, you know, I really, I wasn't equipped to be going back and forth by myself. And then however long the trial, mom, how long did the trial end up taking? Almost three weeks. Yeah. And the defense attorney had put her dad and I on the defense witness list to keep us out of the courtroom. Mm. So when she testified, we couldn't be in there. Yeah. So friends and family, we didn't ever acknowledge them. We pretended we didn't know them, came in to the courtroom and sat in that front row to be there for us. So she had. They were like the proxies for us. Yeah. And, and the defense attorney was screaming so loud at her that the bailiffs came out and moved us to another hallway because we could hear what she was saying. And it was very stressful. And when Alexa was done testifying and came out of the courtroom, she came out of the courtroom and she shut the doors and leaned back against them and she said, I never have to do that again, Daddy. And she collapsed in his arms. Yeah. That was... That I remember was that. I yeah. do remember that. Because I don't, I don't know why I just remembered. I just knew I had been really tough on Dad for a lot of this because he was just so... My dad was so angered at the process that he was already at the point of how are we going to help other people? Why is our system like this? We need to do something. And I was like, hello, like I'm still in it, like trying to get through it. I'm not ready to try and help anybody else right now. Like I need to get my shit yeah. together and live through this and then maybe we can talk about it. But he just was so incensed and so angered. By... And I think it was a way for him to cope. Absolutely. It, was a coping mechanism it totally was. It was. Because I... the police the police said to me, one of the policemen was watching Dad walk out of the building out through the window one day, and he goes, there's a man that looks like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I think another part of it, too, was that um, even in my case, I was put on trial. And so, like, you know, you know, you learn about that ha and you under you can kind of like conceptually understand it, though I don't agree with it when it is a situation of his word against her word because you have two conflicting stories. But 
in this instance, I was so naive initially because I thought like, what the hell defense does this guy have? Like, what are they going, what are they going to say about me? Like, I literally was in my bed and then going to use my bathroom. Like, how does this happen? And like, I remember her, the, the defense attorney asking me like, when I went out earlier that night, how many beers did I have? Were they in a can or a bottle? Um, why, what, what poster was on my wall? Why did I have a Bob Marley poster on my wall? Like, it was just so, it was just crazy making to me. And then the fact that also, like, I finished testifying for the defense on one day, and then I had to wait the ne- till the next day to testify for prosecution. Oh, and also, I wasn't allowed in the courtroom ever unless I was testifying. So I had to sit in the hallway the whole time, the whole trial, which was super the, the, the defense even paid because we got to see what they spent the, like, in discovery. You saw what they spent the money the state gave them on for investigation. They went to her primary school. They went to her middle school. They went to her high school. They paid $200 for a copy of the yearbook. And there was a picture of Alexa, one of her best friend. Um, Don and their best friend Mike in a bathtub together. They were closed, but they were in a bathtub on a boat in Greece. We were on their senior trip or junior trip or whatever it was, and they tried to make it look like she was this loose, immoral person. <laughs> so, you know, and they tried to use all that against her. They were just digging up crap that really had no substance. And the, it was the prosecution's case took three and a half weeks. Because the defense cross-examinations were so ridiculous. So when it came time for the defense to put on their case, she stood up and she said, defense Russ, they didn't even put on a case. After she kept saying she had all this evidence she was going to produce, she kept being quoted in the newspaper that she was going to decimate her on, you know, when, they, when the defense had their chance. And they just said, defense Russ. It was a shock to our system. And then the jury took three and a half days to deliberate. And we, we were, you should have seen her. She was terrible. And we couldn't figure out what was taking so long. So after the trial was over, unprecedented, the jury, most of the jurors came back and talked to my husband. I was busy with Alexa. He, they talked to him and he said, what the hell took so long? You know what they told him? Two things they told him that were significant. One, There was one holdout, and it was an older woman, and she couldn't believe somebody would do something so bold. So she had a hard time believing it was true. They were like, they were like, they had to fight with her. But there was a professional photographer on the jury, and he had broken in through a basement window, and the defense had mounted the photograph in reverse. So it looked like Alexa had to open the door to let him in. And he said, I'm a professional photographer. I looked at the bottom of the strip and I knew it was mounted in reverse to make it look that way. And that really pissed me off. So there were things that you just don't expect. And the judge that we thought we were going to have to fly back for sentencing. After the verdict was delivered, the judge said, come back this afternoon. I'm sentencing today. These people have been through enough. And he sentenced him that day. It was a shock. I mean, the courtroom was all abuzz. There were law students there. There was press there. There were people from the university. You know, it was amazing how many people were there. 
And um, he did. We came back and he sentenced him right then and there. What was it like to hear the verdict and then the sentence? It was a relief. Um, Foolishly, we thought it was going to give her some peace and closure, but it didn't. And when working with other victims' families, I always tell them, even if you get a conviction, it doesn't make it all better. There's going to be a letdown, and you have to watch for it. Because we learned it all the hard way, you know, having never been through anything like this. And it didn't It didn't help her. It really didn't. It didn't matter at that point. She was, was so done. beaten. Yeah, she was so beaten down that it didn't give her even a blip of hope. Can you talk about that a little bit, Lex? Yeah, I mean, I think part of um, the reason I did end up testifying was because I had this idea, and I guess my parents too, that this was going to somehow help me in the healing process, that this was going to bring that idea of closure, which there's, we know there's no freaking thing, there's no such thing as closure. It's just not ever closed. It's open. Um, and I remember one thing that I did feel, or I still feel I don't regret, was reading my victim impact statement. Because that really, you know, you don't have a voice when you're testifying because you're getting asked specific questions. You're not telling your story sort of unfettered or in your own words. You don't get to do that. And so it was my one chance to sort of describe in my own words, you know, what the impact of all of this had been on me. But I did have the impression that I was going to feel better, but I didn't. And... That was scary to me because I thought, if this doesn't make me feel better, what the hell is going to make me feel better? And I mean, it took me many, many, many years to get to a point where I was like, okay. And I wasn't in, you know, dealing with like drinking too much or doing drugs or I wasn't just a mess in really unhealthy relationships or putting myself in bad situations like you can my mom can talk about that too like I was a hot mess for a really significant period of time and I often felt guilty about that because I felt like well I should feel better because I had this opportunity that so many people don't have and he was found guilty and he did get a significant sentence but you know, trauma is trauma. The trauma happened. And the no matter what happens after that, whatever the official systems say after that or validate your story or any of that, like the damage is done. Like the fact that I had to testify, the fact that it had to be all of this, you know, the three weeks and be cross-examined and all of that stuff, that invalidates your story. That's not the system like validating you in any way. And you do feel like a case number, like as much as the police were great to me and the the district attorney, like this was not Alexa against this perpetrator. This was the state against this perpetrator. And so, you know, as much as they did care about me, the main concern was the threat to public safety that this man posed. And I understand that now. And I appreciate that and that's actually the majority of the reason I testified because I thought he was so bold he would do this again I ha- I still have no doubt he showed 
none, no remorse. This was a dangerous person. And, and so that's, that's one of the reasons I felt like God, if he, if I didn't testify and I didn't do all that I could, and he did this to somebody else, I would never be literally not be able to live with myself. Like I would kill myself. That's how serious I felt about it. And so, you know, I, I did feel like a sense of like I, of duty to other people to, to go forward with this. Cause I just felt so concerned, you know, it was, it was important to me, but there was, you know, a long time post court process that I was just not okay. Um, and it, it delayed, I think it delayed my life in a lot of ways. Like the, the, and I feel like the trial has something to do with that too, because I put a lot of my healing on hold until the trial was over. I don't feel like I ever engaged in trying to heal from the sexual trauma before the trial happened because I was so scared about trying to get through that process. What wisdom Mm -hmm. do you have for survivors going through the process now, both as right, somebody who went through the trial process as a survivor and the mother of somebody who went through that process, but also as people who ran a foundation specifically for survivors who were going through the criminal justice process. What words of wisdom would you have for them? Well, my words of wisdom to the parents, number one, don't weep and cry and gnash your teeth in front of this child because it's going to just make them shut down more. Be there to listen. Don't tell them what to do. Let them make their own decisions and be as supportive as you can. Mm -hmm. And for victims, my advice is, there's no wrong way, there's no right way to grieve and recover. Everybody is different. And if people don't understand that, then don't be around those people. You have to be around the people that understand that what you're going through is unique. They can't imagine what you've been through. So associate with those who love you enough to let you be you in the recovery process. Yeah. Lex, what would you say to survivors who are considering the criminal justice process yeah. as an avenue for healing? I I would just warn them. I don't ever want to dissuade someone from going through the criminal justice if that's what they feel like they should do, but I would just want them to be completely aware that it's not going to bring this sense of closure and it's going to be incredibly hard. And they call it the second rape for a reason. It feels like that. And it's, you know, you might not get the outcome you want, and that's going to be devastating. But you might get the outcome you want, and that could also be devastating as well because you might not feel any better. And you're not going to be magically healed. So I guess I have one last question before we wrap up. Um I guess I'll start with Stacy. Um, one, what was it like to hear Alexa talk about this? And what was it like to be on the podcast having this conversation? I was honored that she asked me to do this, but I was also nervous because I thought, am I muddying up those waters for her again? I don't want to do that. I want her to, you know, I just want her to be happy. 
and healthy and not have to... I wish she never had to think about it, but I know that's impossible. I was nervous, to tell you the truth. I was nervous, too. (laughs) (laughs) And now that we have recorded it, how do you feel? I feel... It makes me feel even more that she's healed. I mean, it shows me how much more she's healed. And that makes me feel good. So, all in all, pretty positive thing. <laughs> Lex, what was it like for you? You were nervous asking your mom to be on the episode. I definitely was. I texted Alyssa before and I was like, I'm so nervous. Then I was talking to Chris this morning and he's like, why are you you know, nervous about this. Like it's your mom and like one of your best friends, your ride or die. Like these are people you talk to literally every day. Like so get it together. (laughs) So I feel really good that we did have this conversation and I learned things that I didn't even remember happened. And um, I just want you to know mommy that like, I love you more than anything in the world. And I'm just so proud that you're my mom and I wouldn't have gotten. I'm more proud you're my daughter, believe me. You've accomplished so much. It's just, I couldn't be more proud of you, Lexi. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear. We would like to extend a special thanks to Stacey Branchini, my mom, for sharing her experience with us and our listeners. We hope that you will join us next time when we talk with Dr. Danielle Harris, a senior lecturer in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. Her research examines sexual aggression through a developmental and life course perspective, examining onset, specialization, and versatility, desistance, and related public policy. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or questions about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.